Sexual difference offers us the possibility for the greatest joys, the greatest love, the greatest connection. Sexual difference also offers us the greatest pain, the greatest loss, the greatest humiliation. So difficult for us to, and you know this because I know your books are on uh, retroactive jealousy. This, the, and, and all the pain that can come from, I love this person and then they're looking at the other. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello friends, Zachary Stockhill here. Thanks for joining me for another episode. I'm still speaking to you from Bali. Thankfully, it looks like the Indonesian government is going to let me stay for a while longer, so I'm relieved to be telling you that. And I hope you are somewhere safe and hopefully comfortable as well. I know so many of you are going through a really rough time right now and hope you're all getting through it okay. I have a good one for you today. I'm interviewing someone who I first met around 10 years ago in a university classroom in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, when I was attending McMaster University. My guest today is Cadell Last. Cadell is a writer and YouTuber who writes and speaks mostly about philosophy and related topics and themes. He's a very smart guy. I remember first encountering him in that classroom back when I was in grad school, and he was an undergraduate, and much to the annoyance of most of the people in the classroom, it became apparent very quickly that he was one of the smartest people in the classroom even though he was an undergraduate. Very interesting guy to talk to. I really enjoyed today's conversation. We get into his new book, Sex, God, Masculinity. We spend some time toward the end of the podcast talking a great deal about masculinity and why it's so important to think about, reconsider, recontextualize, and in some ways defend the very notion of masculinity in the 21st century. We get into ideology and the perils of ideology. We get into the current coronavirus craziness and a whole lot more really enjoyed this one. Hope to have Cadell back sometime, and I think you'll really enjoy today's conversation. Before we get into it, a quick reminder that ratings and reviews are very important for any podcast success, including this one. So if you dig Humans in Love, please take 23 seconds out of your day and let the world know. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Cadell Last. Cadell Lass, welcome to my podcast. Good to see you again. Great to see you, Zach. Thanks and, uh, for having me as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I just mentioned you have a really majestic and impressive Corona beard, um, <laughs> which segues nicely into uh, what I was going to ask you. I mean, I've been asking all my guests. We're living through a pretty interesting and unique, well, not necessarily unique, but a pretty interesting moment in history with this coronavirus, the pandemic, and all the rest. But what what is this coronavirus pandemic period been like for you? Like, how have you been thinking about this? How have you been spending this time? What has this been like for you? Uh, I, I would just answer, I would just answer on a personal level, because on a, on a global level, it's just for me, um, confrontation with extreme uncertainty. Um, in terms of, in terms of um, 
political economic consequences and so forth and and consequences for our social lives but on a personal level i think like many other people um this has been a time that has been mostly structured not with a not with a biological battle but with a type of social intimate battle um i think it challenges i think this event has challenged a lot of our social lives has challenged a lot of our our intimate relationships i've heard lots of jokes about there being a rise in divorces a rise in babies at the same time you know so it, i think that the, because this event has shaken the foundations of our social organization as a consequence of that a lot of people are struggling and going through a lot of um intimate personal transformations with their closest relationships and that has certainly been the case for me it was the corona beard was that a conscious choice did you decide to sort of grow a beard and just let it let it flow um i don't know <laughs> i i think i just i think one of the one of the um maybe theoretical or even spiritual dimensions that led to growing the beard was i i've been listening to a lot of yogis um mm. i've been i've been studying yoga philosophy a lot um just in in some of my my spare time and i i actually i came across a clip by sadguru uh and sadguru said that um it had a huge impact on me where he said you know the only reason why we don't cut our hands or the only reason why we don't cut our bodies is because we feel pain you know if we could cut our cut our cut our bodies we do the same thing to our bodies that we do to our hair you know we would constantly stylize our hair in a certain way you know like um, you know like we do go for a haircut and it's not painful you know so i i i just like this idea to just let myself grow as i am so this is this is what i am if i don't cut myself if i don't modify myself um and for some reason that had an impact on me i don't know if it'll be a lifelong or anything but it's something that i um would put in contrast to i think the um i think i'm interested in studying the relationship between the buddhist world view and the yogic world view because i think that they're um in some dimensions opposites and in some dimensions complementary um but just you know of course the monk world view i st also studied some monks and they would have the principle that we shave everything we shave all of our hair um because it has sort of like a superficial aesthetic dimension and that we want to get rid of that superficial aesthetic dimension so i'm sort of this is the sort of place i'm playing in my mind with these things it's just 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 really playful interesting that's so much a much better answer than uh, i've been lazy since <laughs> since the <course. laughs> it's a much better answer than i was anticipating that's great so you and i met back in yeah i think 2010 2011 we were students in history and uh both of us have ended up outside of canada you're in europe is that right i'm in london uk at the moment great oh is that europe anymore that's a good question <laughs> other than that but the like what are you working on these days how are you spending your time i know you went to the european graduate school is that right um i've collaborated with some people at the european graduate school um but i don't have a a formal connection there i did my phd at the evolution cognition and complexity department in brussels at the free university of brussels and i finished that in april of 2019 um after that Um I've since published my thesis which is available um online it's called Global Brain Singularity 
um, and I got a postdoc at a general systems group. Uh, it was a group that was studying the work of uh, Ludwig von Bertalanffy, who was one of the pioneers of general systems theory. Um, so I, I, I also sort of tried to make connections between the work I did in my thesis and general systems theory for a bit. And then on the side, I've also been working on um, this book, Sex, Masculinity, and God, with two other friends. And the reason why I started working on that book was because even though in my PhD, we were very interdisciplinary, even in my postdoc, very interdisciplinary, trying to bring all the subjects together and think from a very broad general point of view, I felt like what was still lacking in these discussions I was having was one, I felt like the knowledge was disconnected from our sexuality, just our, our sexual being, you know, just the, our day-to-day -day experience of that. I felt like the knowledge was not really helping us confront um, the, the gender conflict um, as it's emerged in the last few decades. And I feel like there's very, very unique problems which require new thinking to approach those problems. Um, and then finally, I felt like there's this weird paradoxical repression of religion, where even though we live in a post-religious age, I feel like many of our ideologies function in quasi-religious ways. Um, and I think that we encounter similar problems in um in these in these ideologies but it's in some sense in some sense it's it's worse because not worse but it's in some, it's different because the people who i would say act religiously are not would never bring to consciousness that they were acting religiously you know like they would never be able to subjectively identify as such yes so so i wanted to open up a space to have those conversations. And, and that's what really led to, to the book, uh, Sex, Masculinity, God. When you talk about ideologues, I mean, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about feminism or men's rights activism or Republicans and Democrats? Or what are you most interested in here? Sure. Um, ide ide ideolo ideology, ideology generally is interesting. I, if I would define it in, in my systems research and in studying Bertha Lanfrey, I sort of came to the understanding that a useful model for ideology might be a type of um, subjective closure. So it's it's a type of it's a type of it's basically transforms the system from an open system to a closed system. Now I don't want to make I don't want to make the presupposition that that is or put a value judgment on that. Like saying, for example, openness is good, closeness is bad. Right? I don't want to make that value judgment, but um, just the capacity to sort of have a meta level understanding of what is the emotion or what is the feeling um, that leads to this need for an ideational closure. Um, and how does that process occur and why does it occur in the, in the different historical forms that it does. So for example, if we're talking about either feminist ideology or we're talking about some men's rights activist groups, there is a type of closure which occurs within their, within their understanding of gender and their understanding of the relationship between the genders, which um, is driven by deep emotional pain on some level. Yes. So, why, so why 
why do, why do these ideologies appear as they do at this historical time? What does that tell us about our, our emotions of this present moment, for example? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if pain is a precursor to being prone to being an ideologue. I was just having this conversation the other day. Someone was asking me to kind of locate myself politically, which I basically can't do at this point. And I was thinking if I could sum up my politics in a, in a phrase, it would be, I'm an anti-ideologue. <laughs> no mm. one school of thought has all the answers. And I was thinking if I had a lot of money, what I would do is I would start a campaign, a social media campaign clothing with the phrase, make nuance great again. What do you think? <laughs> like, well, living in an extremely ideological age, I find it very alienating and very frustrating. Yeah. I think there is, there is this, there is this, um, what one, I would say that's a really nice, nice way of framing um, ideology and also a nice way of framing a type of approach to anti-ideology, which, which is just basically saying that no one system of knowledge, no one system of value can be a complete system yes. or can be a, a, a total system. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of, in terms of how to make sense of that in our present moment, I would also say that nuance is a great tool, uh, ambiguity, um, um, complexity. You know, I always say to, whenever I, whenever I, what I say to people is things are always more complex than you think and uh, you don't see yourself. So there's this, there's this problem of the enormous complexity of the world. And there's this problem of self-transparency. You know, we're not transparent to ourselves. So the more, so, and it's like really paradoxical. So the par the paradox with this self-transparency would be, you know, the people who think they're free or the people who think they're not ideological are potentially at higher risk of being enslaved and being ideological. Whereas people who sort of know that they're not free in the absolute sense, or people who know that, they're, that they also have ideological tendencies might even paradoxically have a better ability to get to this place that you're saying, which is to, to be, hypercritical, hyper-skeptical of oneself and, and, and operate with nuance. The only thing, the only thing that I would, would add is this weird phenomenon of the Make America Great Again slogan and how it's been translated in so many different ways. Like there, I've seen men's rights groups that say, make women great again. <laughs> you know, or I, I've seen other, you know, and you're saying, make nuance great again. So what's this What's this temporal function that's operating? Where what's going on is, I think, I like this notion of retrotopia. Mm. It's not, it's that we think that there's some time in the past where there was a greatness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then we want to bring it here. <laughs> right. And I, I'm just interested, what's that going on? <laughs> no, it's, it's a very good question. And I'm thinking, when was nuance ever great? Maybe like the, this is what I'm the enlightenment, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> but here, like here, I would use, so obviously enlightenment. So neither me or you or anyone alive today was alive during the enlightenment. But I have some evidence from the 1960s that, that the enlightenment might be a type of this retroactive illusion going on. So in the 19, I talked to a guy from the 1960s about the, 
the countercultural movement, the psychedelic movement, all of the free love, the hippies. And he was saying it was a very small number of people who were actually doing that. Yes. Like the majority of the culture was very normative, very traditional. The majority of Americans supported the war in Vietnam, which was, right. you tell, like contemporaneously, if you tell people that today, it blows their minds because we had this, you're right, we had this illusion of the 60s as just being this explosion of countercultural consciousness, when in reality, it was constricted to select groups. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So I think the same thing might apply to the Enlightenment, right? Like you could imagine, uh, oh, you know, everyone in the Enlightenment was like Kant or Hume. Kant and Hume were very uh, mar like marginal or the extreme minority of the, of the population. And yes. most people were probably just the same, same old rabble as there's always been. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Fair point. Indeed. I want to get to the book in a moment. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about, about the new book, but before I do, I was, I was curious. So I think I mentioned a moment ago that you and I met in a history classroom, but my understanding is, and this is certainly related to history, but my understanding is your main sort of interest is philosophy. If that's, is that true or? Yeah, it's, bec it's become philosophy. So mm -hmm. it's evolved. It was evolved in my undergrad when we met, I was double majoring in anthropology and history. And my main interest was basically human history. Like, but anthropology was the evolution. So I was studying biological evolution of humans. And then I was trying to connect it to the cultural evolution in history. Um, and as I became more interested in, um, you know, building my own ideas of, of, of history and of evolution, uh, I found myself gravitating towards philosophy, basically, but philosophy as a tool to make sense of evolution, I would say. Interesting. Because how, I, I, I feel like, talk about I feel that like in, yeah, I feel like in some sense, there was a huge divide between the sciences and the philosophies that somehow became um, wider in the 20th century. And as a consequence of that, I feel like the sciences got locked in a type of naive ontology, which is basic, which is which is basically, you know, what goes on in classical and quantum physics. And then evolution as a scientific idea never received its proper ontological foundation. We merely inscribed it as a sort of epistemological useful tool, but we didn't really take seriously what the idea of evolution meant for fundamental reality. So let me give you a, a quick example of how I would communicate that difference is that when science was grounded in Newtonian physics, we had this idea that the universe was a clockwork, you know, that the universe was a, a metaphorical um, deterministic machine. But if you change the presuppositions from a Newtonian foundation of science to a Darwinian foundation of science, you get a totally different metaphor for what the universe is on a fundamental level. And I think that you get a different view. You get, you don't get that. You can't think of the view as you can't think of the universe as a deterministic clockwork, or you can't think of it as this absolute space-time arena that's existed for all time and will exist for all time. 
you get this view that actually everything that exists is constantly changing, growing, developing uh, through processes of, of birth, sex, death. It's very much like the universe is a growing organism. So you get a totally different, so instead of a clockwork, you get the view almost like this view that the universe is a giant organism. And that, you know, I'm interested in that philosophically. And it's actually not a new idea. I mean, the ancients had views like this, but um, it's it's the type of thing I'm interested in philosophy because of that. You know, like it's it's one it's one thing to take the idea of evolution and to, um, you know, inscribe it almost into a mechanistic paradigm. But then there's all sorts of problems that biologists face with this reduction to physics. Um, and that comes up basically in the philosophy of emergence. So you'll have all sorts of biologists who are com competing basically between the reductionist gene-centered view of evolution and the more holistic um, higher order selection point of view where entire groups can become processes of selection, drivers of selection. And that comes into how do, we, how do we apply the idea of evolution to, you know, civilization as a whole, which is, you know, extremely, uh, ex you know, extremely controversial. It has been done, but, you know, it, 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 it's, not, it's not really, we don't have a well-accepted idea of, of how to apply the idea of evolution to civilization. Are some of the examples perhaps like people taking eugenics and doing nefarious things with that, or, or what are we talking about here? That well, that would be that would be um, the way in which sort of a naive reductionist scientific mind applies Darwinian survival of the fittest as like kind of like a you know a simplistic tool to a political program. Mm. But when but when but when we when we talk about the evolution of civilization as a whole, we have to be able to overcome our own political economic ideologies and how our political economic ideologies inform our scientific interpretations. You know, mm. if if that if that makes sense, like, uh, and that's just a whole that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, that's a whole. <laughs> well put. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned the Buddhists, um, you know, when we started this podcast and the Buddhists are probably my favorite philosophers. I'm not sure if you'd categorize them in, in the school of philosophy that, sure. that you're most taken with, but I, I love a lot of the, the ancient Buddhists as well as the Stoics. And I think the main reason I've gravitated to those schools of philosophy is because of their, maybe not unique, but their certain um, interest in practical application of their philosophies, grounding their philosophy in the experience of the lived everyday you know, life. And I was, I was thinking about this earlier today. I mean, you are, have spent much of your adult life as an academic and you have this interest in philosophy. You were just telling me and giving me some very interesting reasons why you're growing your beard, for example. Do you have any other examples or anything else you can talk about in terms of how your study, your appreciation, your exploration of philosophy informs choices maybe you make in your personal life? Yeah. Um, well, one, I, I, I definitely have... Um, my sympathies with with Buddhist and Stoic philosophy as well, and I think actually they go really nicely together. Um, but in terms of how in terms of how philosophy affects my my day to day life, it would be that philosophy has confronted me with the fact 
that I cannot exclude myself from the system. Meaning that I can't just have a, I can't just have a system of knowledge, which I sort of reflect and communicate, you know, to others. I, I can't, you know, it's kind of like this, this view that you have this abstract objective universal view of, of everything. And that somehow you are an observer outside of that system, if that makes sense. And philosophy has convinced me that my knowledge and my process of becoming are a part of the universal becoming. And that the more I include myself in the system, the more I include my actions, my personal life, my intimate connections, my how I engage with those things, that I am actually a part of cultivating universality. I can't, I can't abstract myself away from it. So the way, the best, the best example I could think of that, you know, as an example for people who are interested in, okay, what does that mean? How, how do I start thinking about that? Read, like, start with Plato's Symposium. In Plato, in Plato's Symposium, you have people talking about the absolute, the universal, but the whole conversation is about eros. The whole conversation is about love. The whole conversation is about how do I relate to love and how do I embody love in this world? And, and to me, to me, it's, it's, it's something I can't run away from. You know, it's, it's something, it's something I have to take seriously because I've seen too many times professors who are the smartest professor in the world, but they're still unintegrated with their personal life. Absolutely. And yeah. So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, and what you just talked about, there's a big reason why I uh, left academia and why I decided to go down a, a different path. And I mean, this is a, Maybe the, I don't want to go off too far off on this tangent too, but you mentioned you know professors being the smartest person in the room. You know, all these professors it seems to me lack a somatic experience, like an experience grounded in the body, completely detached from their somatic bodily experience. And I don't know about you, but the longer—I mean, I was in university for seven years, and the longer I continued on in university, I felt that happening more and more to me. Where I was, and we could talk about ego and all the rest. I mean, I don't want to go down this. Pat, there's a lot about the academy, which I really, really love and which I hope survives COVID. Um, but that was motivation for me, for sure, to um, reconsider some of my choices. I mean, watching you from afar since we, since we uh, parted ways or since we went in different directions, I mean, it seems to me that you are more and more concerned with getting your work out beyond the academy. You have a very good YouTube channel and you're engaging in other projects. How are you thinking about your career and, and positioning yourself in the world like as a professional? It's a good it's a good question in some in some sense in some sense i've i have i've i've never changed from the view i had when i first went from because i don't know if you know but i failed high school and i had to go to a community college before i went to university because i was in high school i was just into sports i didn't care about academia then i switched but anyway so when I went to the community college and I started learning all these subjects, I quickly realized that this drive was in me, not the institution. So the drive was, was my own and the institution was just kind of a background that might right. give some professional uh, credentials. They might give some um, 
you know, open some doors, opportunities and so forth, but they weren't where I connected my identity fundamentally. Hmm. So, so because of that, my, my goal has always been to remain true to my drive and to sort of let the professionalization and the career stuff sort of emerge as it, as it will. And when, when I've, when I've done that, what it basically means as an ethic of action is that I won't compromise or sacrifice my true um, aim in, in, in philosophy or my true aim in, in, you know, what I want to explore or investigate for the institutional norms or for the institutional expectations, you know, um, and so far I've, I've managed to keep the lights on, <laughs> you know, doing, <laughs> yeah. doing that, you know, but so, so that, that, so I don't know what will happen. Of course, like I said, on the global level for what's happening with COVID, I think we're experiencing extreme uncertainty in the political economic sphere. I don't know where I'll end up in academia or if I'll end up in academia. All I'll say is that the work I've published I think is of a high academic quality. I think that if academics read it, they'll find it um, stimulating and productive and things to build on. But I'm not looking to make that legitimate by like getting a stamp of approval from Harvard University or a stamp of approval from X professor who's the top of the field. I'm, I'm just, you know, it's like imagining, like I always say, like imagine if Nietzsche was like, um, you know, trying to impress a grant proposal committee, you know, like, no, like yeah. imagine he, imagine he submits his abstract or something of uh, thus spoke there's Zarathustra, yeah. you know, do you think it's good? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen, you know, this is not his dead thing. It's kind of a bu bummer, Friedrich. I think you might, you might need to rethink this. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm just, I'm just, what I'm basically trying to communicate in a short way is that I try not, and I guess this is also definitely something sy uh, synergistic with Buddhism, certainly, probably Stoicism as well, is I'm just not trying to connect my identity to the institution. Mm. I think that's a I great way to think about it. I don't want my emotional valences to go up and down depending on whether they say I'm good or bad. Yes. Or connecting your value to the number of letters you can attach to the end of your name, as so many oh, people do. That's crazy. That's crazy. I have met so many people who basically, you know, they sign off with like, I am doctor, 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 you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> Right. Whoa, so many doctors in the next life, he'll die and he'll come back as a doctor because he's still got all these extras, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Like at how, at, at what, at what point would a degree make you love yourself? <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent question. Yeah. And a terrifying question. I'm sure to a lot of those people. Yeah. Um, I, let's get into the book then, Cadell. I mean, I, I'm really enjoying this, but we could go on about this stuff, but I, I do want to talk about the book. So sex, God, masculinity. I mean, we're, we're, let's go into the minefield <laughs> right now. Uh, why not? Um, could you introduce the book? Like, why did, why, where did this book come from? Why did you write it? What is the gist of what you're getting at here? 
So the three, let me just break it down in terms of the three terms because it, it's, it's ultimately simple and I think it affects a lot, of, a, a lot of us today, men and women. Sex, the idea was, is that the knowledge in academia and our scientific knowledge is implicitly disconnected from the real of our embodied somatic experience, you could say. Which, is, which has as a component of it, a fundamental and a very intimate and a very deep component of it is sexuality. Now, it's not to say that sexuality, of course, like we could go, for example, that sexuality is not just this, you know, uh, like uh, reducing the other person to an object, but sex becomes, sex becomes something that you, you build social life with like our, the foundation of our families, the foundation of our communities, the foundation. So that knowledge cannot be disconnected from this. Knowledge has to be self-reflective of this. If we're going to build real communities, right? Because we live in an individualistic, neoliberal individualism as the political horizon. So I think that that leaves us in extreme loneliness because of that. Then the next element, masculinity, is that for the last few decades, you know, we have lived in and not against it. I'm not against it. We have lived in a feminist culture, which has had a necessary historical motion, has had a necessary historical purpose. And I agree with many aspects of feminism. However, when I first went into my first gender theory courses, it was exclusively from the feminine perspective. So, but if we're going to have a gender theory, the gender theory has to understand the interaction, the dynamical interaction between masculine and feminine. And that the masculine is ontologically valid. It's okay, it's not bad, it's not wrong. It, we have to understand what it is deeply. And that's important for men and women. So that's the second point. And then the third element, God, is just that we also live in a post-religious, a post-religious culture, and you say an atheistic, atheistic culture. And at the same time, we exist in a culture which is extremely struggling with, with meaning, extremely struggling with purpose, extremely struggling with metaphysical questions. And all I'm trying to say is let's let's talk about okay, we get rid of the silly aspects of religion, we all agree. Let's talk about the deepest metaphysical mysteries again. Let's talk about the metaphysical mysteries of infinity, immortality. Uh, what's the absolute? What does that mean? Uh, opening it as questions. And how I, frame, how I frame the description of the book is that it's exactly, exactly what you say. I say, there's no final answers in the book. There's no one answer. What it is, is just a opening to deep questioning and a willingness to, to question our own identities and to question ourselves and, to, and to, to, to do it in a collective way, which is why the book is written as a trialogue, as an as a open discussion. And, and could you just introduce the, uh, the two co-authors? So the two co-authors, one, one man's name is Kevin Oros, who's a, actually, he had a similar path to you. He started in academia. He was interested in evolutionary psychology. He was interested in 
the nature of human beings. And he felt that the academia was disconnected from the body. It was disconnected from somatic experience. So he went down the self-development path and he actually is living in Bali at the moment. And he oh. is, yeah, he is, um, you know, um, deep into yoga, meditation, tantra, uh, and also building men's communities and having, you know, and, and having embodied men, uh, events where men can get together and, and, and do, do retreats. Um, and then the other man, his name is Daniel Dick. And I met him in Vienna when I was doing my postdoc. And I just felt like we connected on so many angles because he's also interested in anthropology, cybernetics, history, philosophy. And I just felt like his, I would say, his spiritual expression, like the way he is, complemented Kevin and I really well. And the main point is we wanted to have three people to do the book because the third element adds a huge degree of um, unpredictability where you don't know how the conversation is going to evolve. So you get really, I feel, dynamical, dynamical uh, knowledge from this process. Yeah, there's something baked into that configuration, isn't there? I mean, the famous phrase, two's company, but three's a crowd. If you introduce a, a third person into a discussion, it does. There's a certain element of randomness and disorder that perhaps wouldn't exist with, with just two people. I've never really thought about that before, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to look Kevin up. I don't know if I told you, but I'm in Bali now. So I should I should see if he's down for coffee. That be, that's very cool. It would be awesome if you guys could connect. That yeah, would be yeah that's very cool. So I'll just tell a little story. I mean, I, I, I've been very interested in masculinity for a long time. And we've been talking about um, some of the problems in the academy. And, and I remember one turning point for me thinking about masculinity and thinking there's something, there's some kind of crisis, there's something very significant going on here and very troubling is I was going to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And I mentioned to one of my colleagues, a female, that I was part of a men's group. When I was in Vancouver, I went to a men's group, a group of about six guys. You know, I think the, the age range was, I think I was about 25 and the oldest was about 65 or something. Fantastic. I don't know if you've ever been part of a men's group, but a group of guys getting together. There was none of the taking off our chests and beating drums, none of the that stuff where we go out in the forest and none of that. Talking about our lives, talking about our problems. And I've always loved being in a room filled with men, with masculine energy. There's something to me that is deeply, deeply appealing to me about that, that is very deep, that goes beyond any intellectual understanding. And I was talking to this academic colleague of mine about it, and she was skeptical. And this is anecdotal, but I think it's telling. She was skeptical of the very notion of a group of men getting together. She was kind of, well, what, what, are you, what are you doing there? What are you, what's going on there? And she was kind of laughing at it and thinking it was silly and stupid. And I want to be clear, it was the opposite of any kind of men's rights organization. This is, I mean, I, this is Vancouver. This is a group of, you know, me included. This is a group of five or six hippies talking about our feelings and love and how can we be better with the women in our lives. Like, this is the exact opposite of any kind of men's rights or red pill organization, anything like that. But even the fact that we were getting together provoked suspicion and unease in, in my colleague. And so this is the moment that got me really thinking deeply about masculinity in a new way and thinking, okay, there's something deep going on here. This needs to be rectified. This needs to be addressed. But what about you? I mean, what provoked your interest in masculinity uh, and writing this book? Absolutely a fantastic story, and it's, it's, it's anecdotal, but it does say something really important about the, 
the emotion, the emotions and the, the uh, mind body disconnection in academia. Mm. If I could have, if I could have one statement on what has happened in the emergence of academic gender theory, it's that the gender theory is based on a repression of sexual difference, not sexual, not sexual, not sexual difference as substance, not sexual difference as in because you're in a male body, you are a man. That's not what I'm saying is that sexual difference in terms of form, mm -hmm. in terms of like energy form. So for example, like if you could have like, um, a room full of men talking about what it means to be a man, it's conceivable to me that you could have a subject in a woman's body who is very masculine, who subjectively identifies as masculine in that space, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't change anything. It would absolutely just be this, absolutely fine. There, so I wanted to say that, but it's what motivated me to do this is that there is the because of this disconnection between mind and body where we're not somatically experiencing our bodies, the way intellectual theory has, has developed on the subject of gender is that it has imagined that the bodies we appear in as subjects have no consequence for the way we identify and the way we express. Like just the very, just the very fact that I have a body that cannot give birth changes fundamentally how I experience my reality. The fact that my body cannot grow another organism inside of me changes fundamentally. And if you, on, on the contrary, if you have a body that can give birth to another life form inside of you, that also fundamentally changes the way you're going to subjectively identify and relate to your world. Not to mean that you can be reduced to those functions, just to say that they're constantly informing, constantly having deep psychic, psychical effects on your, on your subjectivity and so forth. So having, this, having the space to talking about what does it mean, the form of sexual difference? How does the form of sexual difference impact the way we construct our identities and, 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 and build community? Because in all of the spiritual communities I've been to, all of them, not even one exception, they respect sexual difference. When I go to, when I, when I've, I've gone to spend Christmas in Islamic center, I've gone to a Buddhist temples, I've gone to Christian communities, I've gone to psychedelic shamanic retreats. What connects all of them, they all respect sexual difference, not in a men are higher, women are lower, this and that, nothing like that. Just that it's important to be aware of, that it informs the way social communities form. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the thing that I find so frustrating with, with a lot of, not all, and again, you, you mentioned some, some um, important points about feminism earlier. It was a historical necessary movement. Of course, absolutely, people should be free to make whatever choices they want. But when I think of femininity, I don't think of weakness. I don't think of subservience. I mean, my favorite line, I think it was a comedian who said, like, women are like gods. They make people. <laughs> what is weak about that? <laughs> my God, you know, we can't do that. 
Um, but yes, we are different. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. I mean, this opens up a whole discussion. I don't know how much you know, but for example, Tantra and all the rest. I mean, let's celebrate our differences. Let's acknowledge our differences. Let's acknowledge the unique power of the coherent, grounded, you know, integrated masculine as well as the feminine goddess, you know, <laughs> let's bring Shiva and Shakti together and make some magic. Um, yeah, so it's, it's nice to see more people talking about these things. Seeing, seeing, seeing difference, seeing difference as a positive mobilizing uh, uh, fact, as opposed to something that's where obviously the differences have the capacity for complementarity. Yes. Is not, is, is, it's, it has nothing, it has nothing to do with this desire, which seems to emerge, which is that difference is some way in the way of some imaginary harmony the, like there's a huge tendency in the ego i think to eradicate difference because the difference creates tension which means that the tension the, here's the thing if you accept sexual difference and you accept there's a tension a complementary tension that means the identity has to undergo constant change constant negotiation constant constant reorganizing of itself it can't just it can't just stay in a homeostatic balance yes absolutely you alluded to this statement earlier but i, I wanted to highlight this because this is one of the books or one of the quotes from the book that i found uh, particularly thought-provoking i never really thought about it before quote the greatest scientific minds in history never appear to consider what role sexuality may play in the fundamental picture or nature of things unquote i mean a, it's on reflection, it's absolutely true. To what can you attribute this to, or how can you explain this? Is it simply because, you know, sexuality through the centuries, especially since the emergence of Christianity has been repressed and this dirty and taboo and all the rest? I mean, why, why do you think that, that uh, this has been the case? So let me make the, the distinction between Christianity and modern science. So, Although it's true that Christianity is um, an agent of repression in many ways, the thing, the interesting thing about Christianity is that they do not exist in a desexualized universe. Christianity is very much a sexualized universe. There's the Father, the the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mother. This is sexual ontology. Mm. Yeah. What what happens with modern science is, is that you get the foundation of knowledge in a desexualized ontology. It's a mathematized geometric universe with no sexual difference. This is, this is crucial. That's what I was saying about the philosophy and the difference between the Newtonian ontology and the Darwinian ontology. Because if you actually think the Darwinian ontology seriously, ontologically, then you have to imagine that we're in a universe where sex is a fundamental. It's not just epiphenomena. It's not just atoms in the void. Sexuality is fundamental driver of change, fundamental driver of form, fundamental driver of, of, of the complexity of life. So our knowledge has to be aware of that, reflect that. So the basic idea here in the Newtonian picture of the world is that you're allowed to pretend that you're an abstract logical entity with no body. 
<laughs> and then you can, and then, and then you can escape, then you can escape sexual difference. Mm. Let's keep, let's keep it real. Sexual difference offers us the possibility for the greatest joys, the greatest love, the greatest connection. Sexual difference also offers us the greatest pain, the greatest loss, the greatest humiliation, the greatest, all these other things, which are so difficult for us to talk about so difficult for us to and you know this because i know your books are on uh retroactive jealousy this and and all the pain that can come from i love this person and then they're looking at the other or i love this person and then but there are others absolutely yeah well i mean i can't believe we're almost up to an hour already we're gonna have to do this again sometime cadell but before I let you go, I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts and, you know, you can talk about philosophy or whatever, but do you have any thoughts on sexual jealousy? Here's, here's my, my take. Human beings in history are overdetermined by the absence of oneness. What that means is, is that we have a desire in our hearts that I think is so deep to be, to be one. And that, and that energy, that energy finds itself filtered through billions of years of our body's history. And the most natural target for that energy is the opposite sex. If you're going to overcome that, and sublimate yourself beyond the opposite sex. That's an incredible spiritual path. I don't know if, you know, who done, maybe Osho, you know, like, I don't know, maybe Osho did it, I don't, I don't know. But unless you're not Osho, <laughs> then you are, you are connecting this deep desire to be one onto the opposite. And the problem is, is that, they cannot be reduced to your image because they're an other subjectivity. Like it's, almost like, it's almost like when we try to make the other person the one, I think we're engaged in an action that's a lot like eating a, like a hamburger or a pizza, your favorite food. That's great because the pizza or the hamburger is not an other human being. <laughs> you can just eat them. <laughs> mm. But with the other human being, they have freedom. They have their own autonomy. They have their own will. And so when that person's energy becomes directed at an other person and the other person is the one and you're no longer the one, that's what brings out all the the jealousy, the loss, the fear, the this is that that would be my my starting point for a discussion about it, I would say. Yeah. And that's a magnificent starting point because I think one of the, well, I don't think, I know one of the major turning points for me in my own journey with overcoming jealousy involved a lot of meditation and going very, very, very deep into this idea of the one being far broader than any woman, than any country, than any, you know, going back to the big bang, that's the one. I mean, I could tell you about some pretty psychedelic experiences I had in meditation retreats that really brought that idea home and during those periods, those glimpses of, I won't be so bold to say enlightenment, but some glimpses of total oneness, um, there's no speck of jealousy. There's no room. There's no nothing. 
there's zero jealousy. There's just love. So maybe we can, uh, we can talk about that next time. I'd really like to do this again, but I have to ask you this before I go, because you're a smart person and I want to know largely selfishly, how do you see the world emerging from this insane Corona apocalypse end times that we're all, <laughs> we're all living through? And I know I realize that's an absurdly general question, but I mean, how do you see the next year of, of life on earth kind of turning out for, for people like us? Do you think we're going to make it out of this okay? Well, it's like, if, if we were in 2019 and you, and here's the thing, is, here's, let, me, let me answer it this way. Science is based on predictive mechanism. So our capacity to predict the comet or the planet is pretty simple. Like it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not so complex that there's, there's too much deviation from a certain simplistic equation or something. As soon as you get to human civilization, the complexity is so enormous that prediction becomes basically impossible even a year out now. Um, but what humans value more than prediction is value itself. What do we what do we value? Now that what I'm saying is is that say you're with a partner and you can predict their behavior exactly. Or you have a partner who you can't predict their behavior, but they bring a lot of value into their life. The one who's very predictable but brings low value is not going to be more desirable than the, than the other who is less predictable but brings more value. My point is that the value is what we want over the prediction. So what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is even though our environment is extremely unpredictable now, and what's going to happen, it's extremely uncertain. And what's going to happen a year out from now is no one knows. Unless you're an ideologue, which then you could know. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that this event challenges fundamentally the foundation of, of the neoliberal era, post-Cold War, post War. Post-Cold War, you have the capitalist-communist division. Then you have the emergence of neoliberalism and capitalism unchallenged. This event, to me, challenges on, the, on a foundation the fact that we have been living extremely individualistic lives. We've been living extremely individualistic lives. We've been living very isolated lives. And now we're brought to that on the deepest level. And the, quest, the question is to me, do we value community and love enough to put in the work in our knowledge that we are we are look we can have intelligent conversations about life the universe and everything we can have intelligent conversations about the big bang to artificial intelligence can we can we use our knowledge to talk about what i say sex masculinity and god, sex masculinity and god good plug well done there i go so <laughs> that <laughs> so to talk about um, the ways in which we can not have some naive communistic revolution, but to have some new sense of community, new sense of, here's the crucial one for men and women, intergenerational connection. We need intergenerational connection. Here, here. We, need, we need to have social spaces where 80-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and 5-year-olds can, can be in the same space because in, unless we have that intergenerational knowledge, we can't develop. 
Mm. That's so well put. And I think that's such a crucial point. You know, I, I've spent probably most of my adult life at this point uh, in Asia and in certain Asian cultures, that's one of my favorite aspects actually is the mingling between the generations. I, I love that. I think it's, it's so absolutely crucial. That's a great point. I think that's a fantastic point to close on. Um, before I let you go, Cadell, where is the best place people can find you online? So you can, you can find me on my website, cadellast.com, C-A-D-E-L-L-L-A-S-T. Uh, and I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can find all my links through my website. Great. Well, Cadell, I really enjoyed this. And let's do this again sometime. And yeah, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, man. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you.